We need to get the smoke machines out of here and put bubbles. Have Jess sing more Lawrence Welk. Joy, you, you've never seen, sung Lawrence Welk before? Oh, man. Uh, you, yeah, last, uh, last week with the Vietnam, everybody's going to be rushing after the gathering here. <laughs> hurry, hurry, get your drinks. Uh, so glad to have you here. My name's Aaron. I'm uh, on the teaching team here. I'm the worship arts pastor as well. And yeah, this is, what, what time is church next week? All right, good. Yeah, no, it was a trick question. It's times, not time. All right, 9 and 11. Great. Uh, before we start, uh, we need to, I, I just want to take a moment and, and pray, because today is 9-11, 21 years ago. Today was a uh, world changer. And uh, so time passes, and sort of the way we remember starts to, um, it's sort of an interesting time. We were asking ourselves in the, the planning, like, what do, why don't we, you know, we don't, Every time uh, Pearl Harbor comes around, we don't. Do, it's hard to kind of figure out where are we, but we want to keep, uh, you know, never forget, right? Um, and especially with, you know, fires, uh, 9-11 has sort of become a de facto way where we remember first responders, that they, uh, they kind of live on edge waiting for those world-changing things to happen uh, so that we can live our lives without having to feel that way. And so today's a great day to remember the sacrifice and the attentiveness uh, that uh, first responders have, and to remember that unity is possible in a country that um, can be very divisive, but uh, when something really big and important comes around, um, God can work unity through it. So let's pray uh, before we move forward. Lord, we do want to thank you um, for giving us uh, the capacity to remember, and uh, we pray that you would help us learn from what we remember. Um, so we want to uh, lift up families and people that are still uh, directly or closely impacted by the events of 9-11. We were all impacted uh, indirectly in some way, but uh, for those that have a, a direct, very close, uh, intimate impact from uh, the loss of uh, loved ones on that day, we wanna lift up those families and those people today uh, that are here and uh, all around the world. Thank you for first responders, uh, for their desire to uh, serve and help and to always be uh, on alert uh, so that we can be uh, living the lives that we live. So we do thank you for those people, and uh, we pray that we would learn and remember always. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Well, we're uh, today ending our five-week sprint through uh, the book of Acts. Uh, last week, Rick was talking about how you could go, you could spend a year in the book of Acts and just not even scratch the surface. And so here we are, and I'm lamenting that we're leaving it. I love this book. Um, I used to just think like, okay, cool, story, story, stories, but let's get to the theology in all the letters that come after Acts. You know, that's where you really learn stuff. But uh, as I've read through Acts more, I've learned it's just profoundly theological. Uh, we learn, in fact, through story and narrative. And the way Luke wrote his gospel, the gospel of Luke, and Acts, he really wrote them like these, these companion pieces that work together. And um, he puts the theology of, of what we believe into the mouths of these characters as he records what they had said. And the way he puts it together, he teaches us through God, or God through Luke, teaches us so much in the book of Acts about uh, how the church was started, who Jesus is, and how we ought to live today. So I hate that we're leaving it, but I'm excited for where we're going because this will actually... Uh, next week, we start a series called uh, My Circus, My Monkeys. It's about the church. 
<laughs> guess who we are? Uh, but as we end Acts, it's going to really launch us well into a series that talks about what is the church and how should we be, because Acts is about how the church began and how it was, and it gives us a roadmap for how we should be. So just heads up, next week, that's the series that we start. Uh, today, we're going to spend most of our time in the last two chapters of Acts, uh, chapter 27 and 28. So we get a sea voyage, we get a shipwreck, we get a snake bite, and more. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but in order for us to really grasp what's going on in uh, 27 and 28 and what it means to us and what's being taught there, we need to rewind. We need to go back to the beginning, Acts chapter 1. Because Acts ends up, uh, the beginning of Acts gives us a spoiler towards 27 and 28 as we've been following Paul through see that Paul, this guy that we had no idea who he was, to us reading the Bible in Acts 1, and by the end, he's the torchbearer for on earth. Let's take a look at, in Acts chapter 1, what it says about Jesus and what Jesus says about what's going to happen. So he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering, presented himself alive, I love that, for 40 days. Uh, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. All right, so I bolded and italicized that. Uh, we want to hang on to that. So Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God, right? So let's just remember that uh, Jesus is, the story of Jesus' resurrection and the fact that the church continued to expand and grow was built on this historical reality that a man <laughs> walked out of a tomb and uh, he appeared for 40 days. I think in uh, 1 Corinthians, it even says that over that period of time, he appeared over 500 people. So you have this critical mass of eyewitnesses to this man who rose from the grave and called himself the Messiah, called himself the Son of God, and it couldn't be disputed. Uh, there were plenty of reasons why this rumor should have been stamped out like many of the other uh, self-proclaimed messiahs that had come attempting to liberate the Jews from the Romans. Uh, for hundreds of years prior to Jesus, there were people who came and uh, people thought maybe they were going to lead a revolt and uh, boot Rome out. And uh, Rome knows what to do with insurrectionists. They just go, uh, but Rome didn't know what to do with this. This wasn't, an, uh, this wasn't some revolution uh, that was seeking uh, a political overthrow. It was something more powerful and more subversive and more frightening to Rome. Uh, they didn't know what to do with this. And we're going to discover more about uh, why that was and how that can impact uh, how we live today. So Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God, and then he says uh, to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this statement by Jesus is an answer to the disciples' question, hey, is this now when you are going to restore the kingdom? Is this when you're going to do it? And I think that's his answer about how the kingdom is going to be restored. The Holy Spirit is coming, and you will be my witnesses. Notice he doesn't say you'll be my advocates, you'll be my congregants, uh, you'll be my fans. He says, you'll be my witnesses. What does a witness do in a courtroom scene? 
There's somebody who has seen something and they are bringing their personal account of an objective reality so that it can be verified and it can lead to a conclusion. And that's what the disciples, the apostles were supposed to be, witnesses, people that bring their eyewitness, their, what they saw and what they heard, what their, their personal truth, their personal response, they're, they're bringing their personal account of a real objective truth so that people can respond and bring a conclusion. So Jesus spoils the plot of Acts for us. He breaks the cardinal rule of storytelling. He tells us what's gonna happen, and that is exactly what happens. We see the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost onto the apostles and the disciples. There were 120 of them at the time, and they all start speaking in multiple languages, and people, Jews from all over the known world, were there, and they all hear in their own language. It's sort of a redemption reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel, where God scattered people from one language into many because they were trying to make a name for themselves. And here at Acts chapter two in the Pentecost, we see the people worshiping God and lifting up his name. And then God through many languages brings one faith and 3,000 are added to their name that day. And the church explodes in Jerusalem and then persecution scatters it throughout the Judean area. And then even up into Samaria, which was a hostile ethnicity to the Jews. So that was a major change when we saw that the Jews realized this is more than just a Jewish thing. Something's going on here. Most religions in the world begin and remain centered around a particular ethnicity, a particular nation. And here we're seeing something where th there's an expansion that's starting to break the mindset of the Jews, that this is something that's bigger than us. They're starting to remember what the covenant to Abraham back you know, thousands of years before Christ, where God pulled Abraham and said, I will make you a father of a great nation and a father of many nations. And from you, from your family, will be a blessing to all nations. And here we're seeing that happen in real time as the, Samar the Samaritans are beginning to come to know Christ. And then the Gentiles begin to come to know Christ. They become followers. We see all these things that Jesus said would happen, happen. And in the midst of that, there's this guy, Paul, and his mission had been to end Christianity and stop it. He was a Pharisee. He encounters Jesus on a road to Damascus, and everything changes for him and for everywhere that he goes. About four times in the book of Acts, we see the Christians referred to as this term, they're followers of the way. So like Acts chapter 9 and 19 and 24. And scholars are kind of debating whether Christians came up with that term on their own or if it was kind of like a slur at the time that you know outsiders called them because they did they it was sort of this odd jewish sect that most people thought of and they just didn't know what to do with it but four times uh, christians are called followers of the way the way of jesus and whether it was a slur or whether it was um a tribute the name stuck for a while and i want to i my assertion today is that paul gives us in chapters 27 to 28 of Acts, and really throughout the entire book, three characteristics of followers of the way, that's us, uh, that we ought to model and pattern our lives after. So let's take a look at them, because we're going to be coming back to them periodically throughout the day. So followers of the way have their identity, their identity is formed by membership in God's family. Right? Their identity is formed by membership in God's family. I didn't think I was that tall. Sorry. Down I go. 
I'm sorry. I'm just making things sorry. I may stand up. I may sit. All right. Uh, they place mission over self. Mission over self-preservation. Mission over self-performance uh, and self-affirmation. Mission uh, goes before our own lives. And they turn the world upside down and inside out, starting with themselves. And so those are three characteristics that we see in Paul's life that should be a pattern for ours. And we also see them in the life of the church in Acts. But in order for us to do that, we need to get, we need to get into the Bible more. And so it's going to be story time. Uh, this next passage, I'm going to read most of Acts 27 because it's a great story. Luke does a really good job of writing it, and uh, I, think we ought to, I think we ought to read it. Uh, so it's not going to be up here because then you're going to be, it'd be like a gazillion slides. So just sit back. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 27, which in my Bible is right about there, right? So you're near the end. If you find Matthew, Mark, or Luke, turn right. If you find Romans or Corinthians, turn left. You'll get there eventually. So we're going to read most of Acts 27. I'll bounce around a little bit, but it's a shipwreck story. It's great. So sit right back. You'll hear a tale. A tale of a fateful trip. All right, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports. It, uh, if you see a long word and you don't know how to pronounce it, pronounce it fast and act like you meant it and just keep going. Everybody will think you knew how to pronounce it. Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea. Uh, Luke says we. This is an indication that Luke is, Luke is with Paul at this time. There are some times in the book of Acts where he just he speaks in the third person, but here, the last two chapters, it's, uh, Luke places himself in the story. And part of that is the reason we see a lot of detail here, is Luke's here. We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. These are all just city names kind of on the coast, the southern coast of Turkey. They're trying to like crawl their way back. You know, back in these days, this was a time in life when nature was in charge. <laughs> Uh, you know, the last few hundred years with Industrial Revolution, we kind of have a different relationship to the world. We really kind of feel like um, the material world is something we can construct and control and, and manipulate to our means. Uh, but back then, the ocean, the sea was a scary place. That was, that was not seen as a place where humans belong. And so even though they had vessels that went to sea, normally you're hugging the land as close as possible because you were in the hands of a force you cannot control. Um, so they're crawling along uh, the coast of Turkey. Uh, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria. So they're gonna switch to a new ship, sailing for Italy, and they put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone, coasting along with difficulty. Uh, we came to a place called Fair Havens. Now, that sounds like a nice vacation spot. Where are you going for the winter? Oh, Fair Havens. Uh, near which was the city of Lycia. All right, so much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, so that would have been uh, in the fall, that would have been the, um, not the Pentecost fast, but the, there's another one. Which one is it? 
unleavened bread. So there's a fast. So about September, October, they'd pass this. So sailing season is over. And they're still looking at over half their journey left. So that's, that's kind of why Luke is putting that in there. Even the fast was already over, and Paul advised them. So Paul speaks up. <clears throat> uh, Sirs... I perceive the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. This actually isn't Paul's first boat journey. He's been on a few ship, ships, and in 1 Corinthians 11, he mentions he's been shipwrecked three times. So he's already had some rough uh, time on the ocean, and I don't think he wants another shipwreck, so he's hearing them kind of talk about, like, hey, should we keep going? And he's like, mm, I don't think this is a good idea. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there and on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So they, they, they set out from there. A nor'easter wind comes in. They call it a tempest. And it drives them off course. And for 14 days... They are caught in a storm, but they can't see the sky, they can't see the sun, they can't see stars. All their sense of navigation is gone. They can't see where they are, and they're completely driven out to sea. That's the worst place for somebody in that time period to be. So they feel like they're going to be lost. Their, their hopes are done for. They won't be rescued. Uh, they're in the hands of the gods. Is would have been the perspective of the soldiers and the sailors at the time. Remember, the default mentality for people at that time wasn't agnosticism. We kind of live in a, in a period where it's like, well, you're either in a faith or you're agnostic. But back then, it was, you, 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 to not believe in a God was like, I don't even understand how that works. That, that wouldn't have even crossed their mind. So everybody there is thinking, we're in the hands of the gods. So Paul says this, uh, picking up in 21. He says, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete. I love those I told you so moments. They always encourage people. <laughs> so thank you, Paul. It's in 14 days. We're not eating. We're going to die. And you say, you should have listened to me. All right. Uh, and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So they're driven along a little bit further. Eventually, they sense that they are getting closer to the land. They take some soundings and they get some different uh, depths and they realize they are getting into shallower water. The soldiers actually try to escape. They pretend they're lowering the anchors, but really they're lowering the lifeboat. Paul catches them, tells the centurion, so the soldiers go, they cut the ropes to the lifeboats. Because if you don't have the sailors on the ship, then they're really done for. Eventually, they see land, they're aiming for it. Paul leads them in, in essentially almost a communion-type meal. He takes bread and says, eat. It's been 14 days. Eat. And he leads them in, in a, a meal and that sort of says, we're going to make it. They run into a reef, so the centurion just tells them, uh, find something that floats or swim, and they finally make it to this island of Malta. And there on the island of Malta, uh, Luke calls the people there, native people, the word barbaros, which would mean barbarian. So Luke refers to them, so these would have been probably Phoenicians, so, or an ancient people that are, they're not Greek, they're not Greek speakers. And so the, that would have been a term that was, in that world, 
for somebody that isn't, they aren't a Jew, but they're not a Greek. So they, they would just call them barbarians, not because they're like, ah, but just because they're not Greek. Uh, so here we have a new people group that Luke is bringing into this narrative. And what happens is we see these, they're assessing Paul, they build a fire, they're very hospitable. Paul works to, he brings wood, and as he puts the wood on the fire, uh, it says a viper, a snake comes out, bites him on the hand. And the people of Malta, they say, this guy must be a murderer or something. He escapes the justice of the sea, but justice won't let him live, and now he's going to die of a snake bite. So in their view, anybody that escaped sea, the, the ocean, they, they must have the gods on their side. But then to get bit by a snake, it's like, oh, no, something must have happened with him. So it says they sit there and wait for him to swell up and die. <laughs> Paul shakes the snake off, and nothing happens to him. So now they're like, whoa, he must be a god or something. Uh, so the, Paul is hospitable with the people, and they're hospitable with him. The chief of the area, his father is sick. Paul heals and prays over the man and lays his hands on him, and he's healed. Then all the sick people of the island come, and Paul heals them as well. And so they hang out together. And so Luke speaks very highly of the hospitality and the humanity of the people on this island. And so it's, again, it's a, it's a reminder to us that Luke is specifically mentioning that this people group is also encountering the good news in the kingdom of God. And all along this way, Paul is not treating all this stuff as if it's a distraction from his mission. He treats it like it is the mission. They leave Malta, they, well, they wait three months for the weather to get better, they get a new ship, and they finally make it to Rome. And along the way, we see these little instances where it says, and the brothers came to meet Paul, and they tended to him. So all along this trip, even in places where Paul has never been, the family of believers comes together and unites in this really powerful way. This young church had this sense of belonging that was beyond whatever city they've lived in or whatever nationality they were from. They had this tight sense of identity and community and belonging in that they were part of followers of the way. They were this body of Christ, this family of believers. And Paul makes it to Rome, and there he lives under house arrest for two years, and that's where the story ends. But it says in Acts 28, 30 through 31, what does it say about Paul there? He lived there two whole years at his own expense, He's a prisoner, but he says, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for being here. Welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Chapter one, we have Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. The last verse, we have Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God. There he is, and where is he? He's in Rome. Ask anybody in that day, where's the center of the world? They would have said Rome. But what did Jesus say? How did the narrative of Acts lay out the expansion of the kingdom of God? Where does it start? Jerusalem, right. And then where does it end? The end of the earth. So where does the narrative of Acts put Rome? The end of the earth. It inverts everybody's understanding of where the world is centered. And we need to do that in our world. The center of the world is not Washington, D.C. It's not New York. It's not L.A. 
We're in the end of the earth, everybody. The center of the world is wherever the kingdom of God is actively expanding. Right? It began in Jerusalem, but it can, continues to expand. It doesn't belong to a certain area. Everybody in that time would have been, well, if you need to go, if everything, you know, Jerusalem would have been seen as this sort of backwater, outskirts, you know, the outer rim. But here it's inverted in this really subversive statement that Rome is placed as this far off end of the earth place that the kingdom of God finally gets to. It subverts the idea that Rome is the center of everything. It changes our identity. Paul says something when he's trying to encourage that crew that we set back in uh, chapter 27. He says something to them that I think is kind of interesting. Acts 27, verses 23 through 24. Let's take a look at it. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So a couple things about that. First of all, he has to say that because, again, there's plenty of gods. So he has to kind of clarify, Oh, because they're going to be saying, oh, which God are you talking about? You're talking about Poseidon? You're talking about... Uh, no, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Notice he doesn't say the God I believe in or my God the God to whom I belong to and whom I worship. He places himself very much in a, I belong to him, he doesn't belong to me, and I worship him, I am underneath him. Paul has a very clear identity as belonging to God. He doesn't use his faith as a trophy. It's God is his owner. God is his father. He belongs to him. And his identity is secure in that belongingness to God and to the others that have that, have that same allegiance. Acts 26, uh, verses 23 through 24, right before, one of the last thing Paul says before this account of this sea voyage, short time or long, he says to King Herod Agrippa, in a trial. He says, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Again, the choice of words. He doesn't say, may believe what I believe. He's talking about change of identity, change of what you are. He wants Agrippa not just to believe the same things that Paul believes. He wants him to become what he is, a son or daughter of the king. He's making these very strong identity statements. And this isn't like a self-constructed identity. We're trapped today. We have about 400 years of lineage of, of uh, thought and art in our Western society that has made us uh, severely oppressed with the notion that we have to self-construct our identity from within. Somehow we have to find out who our authentic self is deep inside and perform it for the affirmation of society so that we can find happiness and fulfillment. And it is an empty, oppressive state that we find ourselves in. Always chasing after belonging, but chasing after belonging in the sense that we want people to affirm what we're trying to figure out is real inside of us and so we're just chasing after people who will pat us on the back and say, yes, that's you. Yes, that's you. 
and we never find it, and we become our own worst gods. We're serving a God in ourselves and in the approval of society that will shut us down. It's so vulnerable. Our identities are so vulnerable. Our mental health is in the toilet, and that's a big part of it. We don't know who we are. We've got a world of people trying to publicly perform inner desires in a way that tries to shape an identity, and we're looking for approval. Paul's identity and our identity is not in how we find something inside of us and then try to perform it for others. It's in what he has infused into us. It's God calling us and saying, I made you. You are an image bearer of me. But it's also God saying, and you have inherited the fallenness and the brokenness and the sin of Adam. And you've ratified it with your own behavior. But now I'm bringing my righteousness through Jesus Christ on the cross, and I'm offering it to you. This is your new identity. I will call you son. I will call you daughter. You will belong to me. Your identity is invulnerable. It is untouchable. It is secure beyond anything you could ever hope to construct on your own. When you have that, it allows you to then live in the fullness that Jesus Jesus said, I have come to give you life in the full. And that means life in his identity, not in our own. When we say yes to Jesus, when we forsake all the things that we're trying to claim on our own, we all of a sudden become invulnerable in our security in him. It doesn't mean we don't have hard times. It doesn't mean we struggle. It doesn't mean we have periods of, dep- we're without uh, depression. But it does mean that we have a place that we can go back to. And no, no matter what happens, I belong to him. Uh, there was a movie in the late 80s, The Untouchables. Anybody remember that? So it was about uh, the group of people, I think in the FBI, that were assigned to try and take down Al Capone. And the problem back then was uh, there was so much corruption that you know, uh, Capone, he could either pay off or frighten anybody in law enforcement that tried to, to get him. So they, gra- they, f- they, they brought this group of people together and they called them the untouchables because they either had the integrity or a, a, they were not able to be bought or intimidated by Capone. They were untouchable by him. And so they were this group that was meant to go after him and get him. They had an identity and they had a, they had a status that Capone couldn't get to the way he had bought or intimidated other law enforcement. And we need to have that kind of identity. And the only way that happens is through Jesus Christ. We need untouchable identities. And that means, and it's really hard for us to even figure that out because the, the idea that you construct your own identity, it's like in the air we breathe. We don't even know it's there. We just, we're so um, infused with it. It's hard for us to realize that our identity needs to come from the outside, not the in. That gives us clarity of mission. Let's look at Acts 28, verse 20. See what Paul says about his mission. He said, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Paul doesn't care that he's in chains. He's still on the mission. And let's go back to verse 30 and 31 of Acts 28. Again, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. 
He doesn't care about the fact that he's having to pay out money to live as a prisoner. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27, a long passage, but it is a great framework for us. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And it goes on. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. There's that invulnerable idea. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Notice he doesn't say anything in here about, I'm living out my truth. I'm being true to myself. I'm finding my... He's saying, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To the weak, I became weak. All things to all people, so that I might save some. Paul is not concerned about living out his identity for the public affirmation of other people. His identity is totally secure. He's like, what do I need to do? What do I need to say? What do I need to be today to convince you to become a follower of Jesus? Okay, uh, what do I need to do for you? His mission keeps him away from his own self-identity, self-preservation, self-salvation. It's about the mission for him. He can, he can be that way because his identity is totally secure. And that is how the church operated. The church turned the world upside down because their own worlds got turned upside down. Rome isn't the center of the world. Everything's upside down. Everything's upside down. Imagine for a moment, this is gonna be tough, that we live in a world where like politics and religion are super, super closely linked. We're in an ideological, divisive climate with highly charged conversations about race and gender and uh, power structures like governing authorities and culture seem opposed to the kingdom of God. I know it's a stretch. Just go with me. Imagine, if you will, a scenario like that. How could the church, how should the church be in such an environment? That is exactly the environment that Jesus birthed his church in, in Acts. A culture and a governing authority that is opposed to the expansion of the kingdom of God. Highly charged racial divisions. Misunderstandings about the role of women and men and what that even means. The church grew and expanded and turned the world upside down in that environment. Are we willing to do the same? And if we go back and we read through the book of Acts, we see that everywhere the gospel and the kingdom expands, it collides with culture and it forces people to make a choice. But the church was something beautiful and frightening. People couldn't help but be compelled by how they were the best citizens 
Paul was a better Roman than the Romans. He would remind them about the legal process and how it's supposed to work. They were the best citizens. And yet, look what it says, one of their accusers of the church. Acts 17, six through eight. The Jews said this as they tried to get the Christians in trouble in Thessalonica. These men have turned the world upside down. They've come here also, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Why? They weren't trying to overthrow anything. They were subverting it and changing everything. When you change who you worship, it means you don't buy idols at the idol shop down the street, and the economy starts to change. Every facet of life, the Romans understood this. As these Christians began to live as if there was another king, when you change your worship, you change your life. And they understood this would change everything. And yet they're not breaking any laws. How are we supposed to stop this? Remember, Rome knows what to do with revolution. And yet these were the best citizens, but they were forcing a change that was frightening. They were subverting the whole concept of how the world works by first transforming their own life. They were the best citizens, the best neighbors. And yet there was another king, Jesus. So they had a different set of ethics and morality that made people uncomfortable. It changed family dynamics from a cellular level to a macro level. The life of Christ and the body of Christ changes everything. And that's what we see at the end of Acts 28. Paul is there in Rome, the seed of a subversive revolution that changes an empire and brings it down. We gotta remember we are not the center of the world. Christianity is not the center of the world. It's not here. Um, it's easy for me to feel that way as we see the decline of the influence of the church in the West. It's easy for us to feel like, oh, well, let's just wait for Jesus to show up because we know it's going to get worse, right? We've got a, I've got an interesting map for you. It's a map of the statistical center of Christianity from the beginning until and projecting. So obviously, it begins in Jerusalem in 30 AD, and we can see it follow the trace, actually, of what we've been reading about, of Paul's missionary journeys. It, it gradually navigates its way up into Europe. And for a long time, that's where it is. And then you can, you can see as uh, the new world is discovered and inhabited, the center, the statistical center. So this was like if you took all the Christians in the world and figured out where they were and then just found the middle point, that's what these dots represent over time, okay? Look what has happened since 1970. The statistical center of Christianity is moving south and east. Right now, it's like in Timbuktu. And the church in China, in India, in Africa, it is growing at a rate that is unheard of. Everybody thought the secularization of the, secularization of the world would change things, but it's really only changed things in our little pocket. The church is growing rapidly in other places in the world. And we can either choose to decide that because we're bummed out that it's not working out how we want here, 
that's just not going to work. Or we can remember that we're part of a movement that is way bigger than us. And we can cheer on what is happening in the world. Yeah. When I was in Israel, okay. (laughs) I remember being struck when I was in Israel at the global nature of Christianity. How many Africans and people from all these other places were worshiping in uh, Jesus. And it just, it sort of brought something to mind, like, well, if I had to answer it on a test, I would say, well, no, America isn't the center of Christianity. But I still kind of feel that way. Um, And don't get me wrong, I think the more that the church influences, and I mean, this is good news. The more good news comes to a place and changes how it lives, the better this place is. But I want it for the sake of the gospel, not for the sake of my country. I want my country to know Jesus for the sake of the people in the country, no matter how they vote or uh, what color state they're in. I want them to know Jesus because it's good for them. It saves them. But I don't want to use Jesus as a way to get the country to be how I want it to be, just for my own benefit. So I am active in every aspect. When our worship should change the way we speak, the way we treat people on social media. It should change the way we vote. It should change the way we work. It should change everything. Everything should be filtered through that. But it's for the sake of what mission? The expansion of the kingdom of God. Not the expansion of our own kingdoms or our own ideologies. We belong to God. He is the God to whom we belong and to whom we worship. He doesn't belong to us. The way we get to this place where our world turns upside down, where our identity becomes invulnerable and secure, and our mission is free to be lived out, is by surrendering to him, by recognizing that only he can rescue you from your sin. If you are exhausted and tired of trying to construct your own identity and then get the approval of others, if you're tired of feeling like you're, you don't really have a purpose or a mission in life, and tired of putting yourself at the center or whatever happens in Washington, D.C., in the center of your world, then today, give yourself to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus the way Paul did on the road to Damascus, the way 3,000 did at Pentecost. Give yourself to Jesus. Let him give you that new identity and that new mission. Let him invert and turn upside down your world so that we can turn this world upside down. Being loyally redemptive as good citizens, being subversive by abandoning the practices that give our lives and our allegiance to other gods. Let's be spiritually formational. It has to happen together. If you can check this one off on your own playing solo, that's not Christianity. This is together. Here, and out in the world, operating together as one body, united, turning the world upside down for him. I want to pray, and if you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't found your identity in him, I want you to pray that prayer today with me. Lord God, I, I want to confess to you that I have been conf- I've been constructing my own identity and trying to get other people to approve of it, and I need yours, Lord. I have sinned. 
I know that in my heart and in my actions and in my attitude, I am sinful, I am broken. I don't live up even to my own standards. And so I am confessing that I'm surrendering to you. I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. I believe that when you died on a Roman cross and you said, it is finished, you meant that for me at that moment, that you have taken my sin and you have dealt with it, and that the sting of death is sin, but you have victory over both of those. And I believe that your righteousness, your right living is now infused into me. I receive the Holy Spirit now to empower me and give me a new identity that is secure in you and can never be touched by the world or by the lies in my own heart. I give my life to you. I believe that you rose from the dead and I will rise from my own grave of sin and I will live for you. And I will carry this message out to the world. You're the God of creation. You're the God of a promise. You left the grave behind and so will I. It's in the name of Jesus Christ I pray this. Amen. Let's respond in worship to the God who pursued us and came to us as we sing together in worship.